Okay, so good evening everybody. Um, sorry we're slightly late starting. Um, welcome. Uh, this is uh, part of the LSE's uh, festival. We're particularly focusing on art and well-being. Let me just say who I am, because uh, I'm going to be up and down on this stage a bit today to keep us to time and to keep you in order. So uh, I'm Martin Knapp. I work here at LSE. I direct a research centre called the PSSRU, Personal Social Services Research Unit, and we do lots of work in that uh, centre uh, in the areas of long-term care and mental health. Uh, and a growing amount of work in public health and broader health areas. So what we wanted to do today was to bring together uh, four very good speakers, which we've managed to do, uh, to focus on the links between art and health, and that includes art and health care to some extent. Um, and I'm going to introduce the speakers one by one. Uh, so we're going to go through four presentations uh, the speakers are all going to be very good in terms of timekeeping, and then we'll have discussion afterwards. So we won't break up. We'll just go through those. It's easier to do that. So if you've got questions for the first speaker, write them down, store them up, and we'll come back to them a bit later on. We'll get all the speakers up on the stage. So a few little uh, comments. You've got a hashtag there if you want to be tweeting this. Uh, I know other people will be tweeting. Uh, if you can, I'm going to do mine phone in a moment. Turn your phone to silent. Um, I'm not sure what else I need to tell you, really. I'll tell you some other things as the afternoon goes on, as the evening goes on. Um, I'm going to first of all introduce Dave McDade, David McDade, who works here at LSE. Uh, he's a researcher, Associate Professorial Research Fellow, is his no, new long title. Um, Dave does loads of work in the area of mental health and lots of work in recent years on arts and health. So over to you, David. Yes, sir. Um, Good evening, everyone. Um, as actually, it's a real privilege to speak about arts, health, and well-being, actually, from an economic perspective, because I actually think it's incredibly important um, to actually make an economic case for investing in art for health and well-being. And why is that important? Because ultimately... Um, if arts, uh, one good potential source of funding for arts for health and well-being will be the health services and local authorities. And it, therefore it's important to think about economic arguments. What is the return on investment from investing in arts for health and well-being? So I want to say a few things about this over the next few minutes. And really just stressing again, first of all, it is so important for local service commissioners, the CCGs they're called, the clinical commissioning groups, to demonstrate this return on investment. And this has been done for absolutely every type of healthcare intervention or health-promoting intervention you could think of. So ranging from drugs to other kinds of uh, uh, clinical interventions to the use of housing to social care interventions. It's about making an economic case as well as a case about do they work, are they effective, and, 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 and as I say, I think this is important for arts, partly because, and I'll be a bit blunt about this, and uh, apologies for offending anyone from the arts world, but sometimes art is seen as a bit of a woolly, fluffy topic. It's not seen as being rigorous and very scientific, and therefore, why should we worry about arts when we have to think about funding really important new drugs or new, new technologies within the health system? So it's really important, actually, to think about presenting a case for arts in the same way as you would present a case for a, a healthcare intervention. It helps art to be judged on a level playing field. Um, 
and, and that's really important. And I'll say a little bit in a, in a minute about how economic techniques can be used to help build these arguments. But I also want to emphasise and stress uh, the importance of, um, of not... Of, I'm going to talk mainly about benefits to health, but of course there are many other benefits related to, to art. When we go to a museum, we, we get gr much... Um, pleasure out of seeing the ex exhibits. When we listen to a, 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 a musical composition, there is, that's difficult sometimes to describe pleasure that comes out of listening to that composition. So it's a lot more than simply impacts on our health and well-being, but, and those other benefits also strengthen the case for investments. So really what I want to do, and, and to be very quick about this, because there are far better speakers than me coming afterwards, and I don't want to delay them, it's just to give some examples of where economists have started to work with people from the world of arts to actually demonstrate to the health system that arts interventions make a difference to health and actually they make a, there's a financial economic case for action as well. And these are just four examples, really, and I could have mentioned others. I could have mentioned, for instance, the benefits of dance, Dance for Health, and indeed I was at a conference that uh, Vivian was at uh, a couple of weeks or so ago where we saw fantastic uh, interventions and the, and the benefits of dancing to improve people's health. Uh, there are all sorts of other things. I, I saw um, a, dis um, a display of magic tricks by a young child of eight years old, I think he was, and he, the, by participating in magic school, he had uh, effectively undertaken occupational therapy that allowed him to use his hands in a much more uh, effective way than what he could do otherwise because he, has, he had a condition that was basically uh, limiting the mobility of his hands. And that was an arts intervention, not a classic health intervention, but it made a huge difference. But I'm not talking about those. Let's see what I am talking about. And I'm going to start with singing. Now, I'm not going to sing. That would be... Um, uh, a very painful experience for all of you. But, but actually, there is a growing body of evidence from the UK and other places that singing can make a difference. Now, it may be as much, and I think that a lot of this is not just about the process of singing itself, it's about community participation, group activities. And there's a very nice paper that was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry last year by Simon Colton and colleagues which looked at the evidence on whether or not participation in group singing makes a difference to your quality of life, to your health, but they also looked at economic arguments as well. And they did something called a randomised controlled trial. And some of you will know what this is and some of you won't. The point is, that is an approach that's really seen as being very rigorous from a, a health system point of view. So it helps sell the message that actually these interventions make a difference. What do they find? Well... They looked at 258 older people. Actually, an interesting challenge here with arts interventions, I would say, in this case, 84% were women. And I think that is a challenge, thinking about how to reach men, actually, in the arts. Um, uh, but five clubs in East Kent, mainly white British people, and this was a professional, they're professional singers leading group singing on a, on a weekly basis. And I think there was a kind of a, an event or a performance at the end of this as well. And basically, they, they did determine that there were significant improvements in mental health scores using a quality of life instrument at the end of the six-month period. Wasn't much difference in service user costs, but the point was health, system, um, health was improved, no negative impact in terms of costs, 
and the intervention had quite a strong chance of being cost-effective. And I would argue that the cost-effectiveness could be strengthened further by thinking about some of the wider benefits of, of improvements on health, if you think about physical health improvements as well, if you think about the improvements through reduction of social isolation by getting people to participate in activities on a regular basis. So that's one example. Another example is work that was undertaken for the Arts Council in England, actually undertaken by uh, uh, colleagues here at the LSE, Daniel Fujiwara and colleagues from the Centre of Economic Performance. And they looked at the benefits of libraries. Um, and um, they did a very rigorous analysis. And what they came up with, really, they, 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 they controlled for various factors. But basically what they're saying is that going to the library, making use of the library services, reading, but all the other activities that go on in libraries is associated with a higher level of satisfaction in life, higher happiness, and a higher sense of purpose. Although they did note it also was associated with higher levels of anxiety. I'm not quite sure why, but anyway. Um, perhaps it's not returning library books on time. I, I've probably got some outstanding books from 30 years ago, but anyway... Um, they also found, and this is, I think this is quite interesting, it's a very small uh, improvement in the likelihood of saying you're in good health. So regular attendance at libraries was associated with a 1% increased, uh, increased likelihood that you would say you're in good health. And using this analysis, they were able to look at the impacts this would mean in terms of contacts with general practitioners, so just contacts with the primary care services. And they estimated that this could be equivalent to the avoidance of 275 million, sorry, 27.5 million, uh, that would be nice, 275 million would be nice, but, but even so, 27 million pounds worth of contact with GPs could be avoided um, as a result of uh, making use of libraries. And of course, that's only a fraction of the potential benefits more widely to the health system because this is only looking at primary care contacts and nothing else. So it's an example of where economists have worked with uh, arts organisations and they've used economic techniques to make a case um, about the benefits of investing in an arts-based intervention, in this case, libraries. There's also been work that's been done on the benefits of attending cultural events, and such as going to museums and art galleries and the like. And one example of this was, is some work that's been done in Scotland, which has been using survey data with, from more than 10,000 people to look at the impacts of attending cultural activities and indeed sports as well, um, impacts on life, uh, life satisfaction in Scotland. So again, and this is important to stress, after controlling for confounding factors like income status, uh, ill health, smoking, etc., disability, those who participated in creative or cultural activities were 38% more likely to say they were in good health compared to those who did not participate in the previous year. But this is controlling for differences in health. So it's not simply a, uh, a correlation that those who were healthier go to more cultural events. It's, not, it's controlling for that. And also they found um, those who read more, read for pleasure, so not reading academic science books but reading for pleasure, um, were more likely to report good health than those who hadn't in the previous 12 months as well. So reading, uh, another potential uh, intervention to think about. And indeed, there's fantastic work that goes on by the reader organisation up, up in Liverpool and other places where group reading takes place with people who perhaps may not read otherwise, um, reading great works of literature, Tolstoy and Chekhov, 
uh, as part of the recovery process from poor health or to try and promote health. Uh, I can think of a group, for instance, uh, managing pain by using uh, reading as an, as an intervention. There's now a lot of interest, actually, in looking at the benefits of going to museums and galleries in terms of their economic return on investment as well as their impacts in terms of health. And I just wanted to flag up uh, an ongoing project uh, in Liverpool um, called Crossing Boundaries, which is looking at the value of museums in providing uh, services and supports for people with dementia. Um, there's a House of Memories. I don't know if anyone's heard of this, but it won, I think it won an award um, fairly recently. And what it does is it basically puts together different kinds of artefacts that help with the reminiscence process, help you, have, you engage people with dementia in conversations about various artefacts that the museum puts forward. And this, this can make an enormous difference to, to people's lives. Um, and now this intervention, uh, and more generally the, the, the value of museums in dementia care, has been subject to economic analysis. So there's work going on to look at the social return on investments. So it's, so it's really trying to recognize, it's recognizing the importance of having an economic argument as well as a health argument. One final one to talk about as well, uh, just a different example again, music therapy. This time a therapy delivered by uh, a specialist uh, music therapist. Um, this is taken from, um, we've, we've been doing some work on this at the LSE. We've looked, we've taken rigorous data from a trial actually in Finland uh, for people with depression. And um, this is an intervention that's been shown to make a difference in terms of depression through regular participation in musical activities. It's basically playing uh, uh, a djembe drum or, or uh, percussion instruments. And, and it's a regular session over 20 weeks. And you can see the kind of instruments there, the kind of funny drum thing. And uh, the digital mallet. Um, I haven't got my pointer, but you know what I mean. So the different kinds of instruments. You can't read this. You don't need to read this. You don't need to worry about it. But the point is that if there's evidence on the effectiveness of interventions arts-based interventions, it's possible then to think about how much it costs to deliver them, think about how they're delivered, think about the probability that, that they're likely to have an impact on people's health and the costs they're, they're associated with um, successful or unsuccessful outcomes. And doing that, we're able to see that from a narrow health system perspective, for every pound you invest in music therapy, you can avoid cost to the health system of around about 47 pence. But if you look at wider costs to the public purse, to other social sectors, social welfare, actually you can get a £1.28 return on every pound you invest. And then if you think about broader perspectives, i.e. helping people return to work, for instance, or return to other activities, then you can save effectively £2.70 for every pound you invest. So from a health system perspective, it seems to be cost-effective, a cost per quality-adjusted life year gained, and a metric that's often used of around £10,000, which would be considered cost-effective in a UK context. But it's actually cost-saving when you take a wider perspective. So to sum up, and I think I'm OK on time, hopefully, um, all I'm trying to say here, because there are far better speakers than me, but it's important to think about the economic argument. And people think, coming from an arts perspective, um, you may not necessarily th think that's the most important thing in life, to think about money. But money opens doors, money creates opportunity, money creates the possibility for investment in arts-based services that actually promote health and well-being. So demonstrating the economic benefits of better health and well-being through art, you know, to do that, um, doing that will have a benefit, um, uh, a benefit for society as a whole. And 
it's, it's a question of a level playing field again. I mentioned this earlier. Economic arguments have made an enormous difference. Some of the work we've done here that Martin and others have, have led on, on the economic case for various interventions, has really made a difference to what, uh, what is done at national and local level, and indeed at international level. And it's really important, I think, passionately think, actually, for research and arts to think about these economic arguments as well. I wanted to end with a quote from some great author, but I, I struggled to think of one, so I ended up um, with Stephen King, which is not, not the greatest literary... Well, he's a, he's a great writer, but he's, you know, he's not considered one of the greats of literature. And, 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 but anyway, life isn't a support system for art. It's the other way around. Art is a support system for life. And I would argue that the, the more that we think about the economic benefits, the return on investment for art, uh, the more opportunities that we have to demonstrate this and to demonstrate that it makes a difference for health and well-being. Thanks very much. Excellent. Thank you very much, David. Um, I told Dave he had 15 minutes. He gave you exactly 15 minutes, which is brilliant. So thank you very much. So I'm delighted now to uh, welcome Vivian Parry. Vivian, I've known for quite some time now. She's a scientist by training. Does a lot of work on radio, in the media, generally uh, on translating science for people to understand. I know he's passionate about arts in health. I'm going to leave her to say more about what she's interested in and fires her passion uh, in this presentation. So over to you, Vivian. So, first of all, I want to say that if any of you want to feel really old, and I am looking at the, the more mature, the people who are obviously in their prime at the moment just go to the Science Museum and look in their uh, galleries at recent uh, acquisitions and you see stuff in museum cabinets that you were using in your teens. It's very ageing. <laughs> and the other thing I want to ask all of you is, who here is a health economist? Oh, go on, put your hands up higher. So, ladies and gentlemen... If you are a student and you're thinking about a career, health economics is the one to go into. The world can't get enough of you. You are like hen's teeth. We all want more of you. And if you uh, are a parent and you have uh, student uh, children who are thinking of what uh, to do in the future, if they're in health and economics, they'll keep you in your old age. So, um, arts and health. Health needs the arts. It really does. And I've always thought that everything has its moment to shine. And I used to present a programme called uh, Tomorrow's World, and people would ask me sometimes why it was that things that they'd seen on the programme disappeared without trace. And very often it was because it wasn't their moment. There were not the things in place that were needed to make it happen. Uh, I have to tell you that Tomorrow's World reported that there would be electric cars on every street corner within five years. We reported that for 30 years without somebody actually twigging that there weren't actually electric cars on every corner, and there still aren't. And that's partly because things like the infrastructure and the economic infrastructure are not there to support that big expansion of use. So why is now the moment for arts and health? 
The moment is now because there is an extraordinary, perfect storm of things going on which make the arts more important than ever before. The first is an extraordinary rise in health demand. That's partly because we're all living longer, but it's also because of a rise in many long-term conditions like obesity, like diabetes, uh, like chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, a lot of those long-term conditions. And the other big, big driver at the moment is austerity. We simply can't afford, not any nation, to fund the health care that might be necessary if we allow people to go on using health services as much as they are at the moment and will increase dramatically in the future. So we need to think about prevention. And here arts have... Uh, an extraordinarily helpful role to play because no matter what government has done, no matter how many posters, how many campaigns, stop smoking, eat five a day, uh, exercise more, actually, do we take any notice? No, we don't, frankly. Although I've noticed that all of you are very slim. We don't take any notice and... We don't do the things that will keep us in good health. Dave was talking about uh, rehab, about doing physiotherapy. God, it's boring. Have you ever tried, anyone done that had broken a leg or something like that? And you have to do this physiotherapy. And it's as boring as hell. And it's as boring as hell if you're really absolutely determined to get your leg back to full uh, 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 use. Never mind if you're a kid or you're just not that keen on doing it. So there are lots of things like rehab-like prevention where the arts could play a very important role because arts engage us in a way, frankly, that health is not able to do. There are something like 10 million people involved actively in arts groups, whether they're theatre or whether they're uh, photography or drama or whatever it is. And when I say arts, can I just slay one thing straight away? Is that when we say arts, people immediately think of kind of fat ladies singing or they think of, uh, you know, galleries or something like that. High arts, they're lovely but actually I'm not talking about the high arts. I'm talking about the out there and low art, the kind of stuff that you all enjoy doing. There will be something that you do in your leisure time that you're passionate about. It could be listening to Motorhead. That's arts. It could be watching movies. It could be uh, any kind of... Uh, concert that you go to or gallery or all sorts of things it's those things that really make our souls sing and often arts are talked about as the medicine chest of the soul so if they're so great and if their potential to engage is so enormous why aren't the arts used in health more There's been an arts and health movement for 30 years or more, and it's never really got any traction. And it's not got any traction partly because health sees art as fluff, 
nice to have pictures on the walls or, you know, they think about it's about, uh, you know, an orchestra coming to play Haydn to the bedbound. I, I, actually, I can't think of anything worse than being stuck in bed with a Haydn string quartet being played at the bottom of my bed. There's probably people who love Haydn here, but I can't bear the scrapey old maestro. Anyway, so... Um, it, and we each have our own thing, don't we? The thing that turns us on. So, why has it just not taken off? Why is it regarded in this way? Why is it that you'll get a, uh, a health chief uh, say publicly, as, they, as she did recently, that she was immensely proud that not a penny of NHS money had been spent on an arts programme that had been uh, instituted at her hospital. And there is a bit of fear of the Daily Mail, isn't there? That people are worried that you're going to have a headline that says, now it's magic on the NHS. And that people are going to somehow recoil uh, in horror. Actually, my experience of journalists who actually go to arts and health um, presentations are completely blown away by it. So part of the problem, I guess, is that the arts haven't always been terribly effective, and I'm about to make an apology for offending any arts people. And they, they perhaps don't present their case uh, very well. They don't present the evidence base. They don't present the economic data. And when they present evidence, uh, what they generally say is things like, they all had a very good time. And that's their evaluation. And it can't be like that. It really can't be like that. There have to be solid outcomes because arts and health commissioning is competing with money for drugs. Anything that you take for arts and health comes from some other pot in the health service. It's a closed system. There is no more money. So any bit that you take from one service, you add to one service, takes from another. So arts really needs to wash its face and present the evidence base. So the evidence is partly economic. It's partly outcomes. So, for instance, uh, Dance to Health, the programme that uh, uh, Dave was mentioning, uh, which is run by a very marvellous man, I can say that because I'm married to him, um, <laughs> uh, called Tim Yoss, who runs ESOP, which is um, Arts Enterprise uh, for a Social Purpose. Um, there, the outcome is fewer visits to a GP and fewer falls. Now, the great thing about arts is that they, are, they can be co-productions, so the Arts and Health Programme, it doesn't, the, the, what they involve is taking exercises that are, again, as boring as hell, um, called Fame and Otago. Now, they have 50 randomised controlled trials behind them, and they really do work. They really do prevent old ladies falling over, and even young ladies. But... These fallen women, do they carry on with these programs? No, they do it for the prescribed six weeks and then they give it up. Although they've, re they've got their strength and balance back, they give it up because, frankly, they think, thank God that's over and I don't have to do it anymore. 
So what Tim has done is he's worked with choreographers and the people who devised those original exercises to smuggle the exercises into dance. And the dancers and choreographers are trained to deliver it, and that's another very important thing that arts and health has to do. They have to provide proper training. And then they're delivered in a co-production locally. So do you like Bangra? Do you like Elvis Presley? And the thing that's very important for the well-being bit is at the end of a six-week course, there's a performance. And I talk to health people and they say, a performance? Why on earth would people want to give a performance? Actually, do you know what? If you think that you can't sing a note, if you think that you are never likely to ever go near the festival hall, as a lot of these people did at this thing um, a couple of weeks ago, and suddenly, because you've done Dance to Health, you are now on the stage at the festival hall, that is a stunning sense of achievement. And I think also when you talk about arts and health programmes, often when we talk about medical uh, interventions, you talk about what the side effects are. The side effects of arts programmes are often very beneficial things. So Dave was talking about those wonderful kids doing their magic. Actually, do you know, those kids, instead of being thought of as the funny kids who sat at the back of the class, they're now the cool kids because they can do magic. And these ladies that go and do their dance to health programs, sure, it prevents them falling over, but also they're with their mates. They develop friendships. They are not so socially isolated. And the thing that's great for the health service is that if you've got 10 people or 20 people, all who've had falls or they've got diabetes or they've got chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, you can actually talk to them as a group. Rather than give the same advice 20 times, you can give it once. And these people become uh, self-sustaining groups where they all look out for each other. Oh, you're looking a bit peaky today. Have you taken your medicines? I think you really ought to go and see the doctor about that. So those things are enormously beneficial. So I think that the benefits for the arts can be profound too. I think arts worry sometimes that in valuing their their product, let's call it a product, but in valuing their art, somehow it devalues it. I'd actually argue the other way, that what arts does often is that it does stuff for nothing. It gets its it relies on project funding, perhaps from philanthropists, from arts council, whatever it is. They'll do it for a time, and then the money will run out. So it's not sustainable. And actually what the health service wants is it wants sustainability, it wants reliability, it wants evidence, and it wants uh, something that is economically uh, costed and valued and can be delivered uh, in a a, a preset way. What it also is for the arts, of course, is another source of income. At a time when uh, uh, income for the arts is ever decreasing, how wonderful is it for the arts to have 
a small uh, or an income stream that doesn't have to take all of their time but actually then delivers an income to them on a regular basis. So I'm going to stop there, but just say that I think that arts and health now is the moment. Um, so well, Angie's going to change the slides. Just, um, I'm sure you've got questions and thoughts and comments, so store them up because we'll have a chance for uh, discussion uh, later. So I'm welcome, delighted now to welcome Liz Brady, um, who is a visual artist and curator based in Manchester. She's the founder, as you've seen up there, of Broken Grey Wires, which is a contemporary art organisation responding to and exploring mental health, philosophy and psychology. And I couldn't avoid not saying this from the announcement. Liz's work has been described as striving to create a Cartesian dualism, which is, for people like me, is translated as a link between physical stuff and thinking stuff. So, physical stuff and thinking stuff, Liz, the floor is yours. Thank you. I'm going to talk a little bit about Broken Grey Wires and then a little bit about my own work and how it affects my mental health. Broken Grey Wires is an art organisation responding to and exploring mental health we work with the community, critically acclaimed artists and major institutions to open up a dialogue to provide inspiration and opportunities for people with mental health difficulties. Broken Grey Wires has been developing over the past two years after a suicide attempt and hospital admission. I realised that I was on a self-destructive path and needed a focus. I'd had ideas for Broken Grey Wires to be an exhibition um, and started to write poetry in hospital. And the phrase Broken Grey Wires was within one of the poems and it's striked a lot of imagery for me. Um, I started to write to artists who inspired me, um, David Shrigley, Jake and Dino Chapman, The Vacuum Cleaner, um, Bobby Baker. And it was a real confidence boost because they were saying yes, they wanted to be part of this exhibition. Um, the first six months of developing this show, I realised that it could be more than just the one exhibition. I was meeting with organisations that looked at art and mental health, such as Pool Arts in Manchester, and realised that I could do also workshops and talks. Um, there was a lot of pressure, though, and a lot of stress because it was just me running Broken Grow Eyes on my own. Um, I wasn't able to make art, which is the most important thing for me, is to make my work. A couple of months ago, I had a funding rejection from the Arts Council and had a bit of a meltdown and decided that I wasn't going to do it anymore. Um, I took a two-week break and went into the studio and started to make work again. And it really helped me to have clarity and refocus what Broken Grey Wires would be. I decided to form a collective... So now there's five of us, um, Kirsty Harris, Robert Good, Jared Pappas-Kelly and Alexander Story Gordon. And we're from all over the UK, Glasgow, Newcastle, London, um, Cambridge and myself in Manchester. And our ideas are to be ambitious and adventurous, which is really important to the ethos of Broken Grey Wires. Push the boundaries of our own work, push the boundaries of the work that we do in the workshops and also with treatment and how we view treatment for mental health issues. I've just started to work with the Early Psychosis Intervention Programme in Manchester, 
um, running a big project over the next two years called Unoya, which is a unused word for beautiful thinking. So we have a website now where you can go and write what you think beautiful thinking is to you. And then I'll be making some artwork around those comments and images. Uh, there'll be three series of workshops over the next 18 months and it will be film, print and either music or writing we've not decided yet uh, and I will invite a specialist in to come and work with me um, to do the workshops the point in the workshops is to create self-pride and accomplishment and confidence to the participants there's one um, guy who is from the psychosis programme at the minute and he wants to make a documentary about his experiences of psychosis so I've been able to invite someone in who runs documentaries and he will give him the camera and teach him how to do that and then at the end of it there'll be a show hopefully at the Whitworth Gallery in Manchester 2018 I've put down here actually art is a facilitator for recovery but just last week um, in my therapy session, we were talking about the word recovery and how, for personally for myself, it puts <clears throat> a lot of pressure to, to be recovered. I'm not sure if that's something that can ever happen with mental health and instead it should be looking at how you can control your mental illness, um, figuring out techniques um, to when you get into a bad day to be able to go through that and not fall back into that self-destructive path. Uh, I don't want to put a downer on things, but I did think that I should mention the negatives of art on my own mental health personally. It, when I'm making work, it does cause a lot of self-doubt and self-criticism, as I, I have an irrational fear of failure and not being good enough. Although this can be good, as it pushes us to be a better person, or an artist, or whatever your job is, I do think that too much can be negative, and it can sometimes halt the creative process, as there's too much anxiety. Um, but one quote that I really like from R.D. Lang is, madness need not all be breakdown, it may also be breakthrough. And this links to the funding rejection. I had a bit of a breakdown, but I also ended up with a breakthrough because I was able to refocus um, what the project would be and get some clarity on that. Obviously... The majority, 80%, I would say, is very, very positive how art affects my mental health. Being creative is a release and a distraction. I think that when I'm in my studio um, and I'm working on something, there is it's sort of being in a bubble. There's nothing else going on. All the bad things or whatever is, is just gone. The self-pride, making art, learning new things is exciting and rewarding. I do a lot of reading and re look at research and make, try to make links between things. So at the minute I'm looking at the Stanley Milgram experiments, the Stanford Prison experiments, and linking them to lunar theory, which is what I want to try and portray in the workshops, giving people a space, a safe space to be creative and to express themselves. In the in hospital, there was an art room, which was the smallest room in the building, it should have been the biggest room, really, because it was always full. And no matter what was going on, um, people could go into that room and either make a masterpiece. Some people were, because they did art on the outside. Some people would just sit in front of their colouring books. 
but there was always a sense of calm and I think that's what I want to emulate on the outside here with Broken Grey Wires is giving people a safe space to be creative and to gain some confidence and um, be, be in shows with important artists as well. So I think that I am at the end of my... I'm sort of eyeing the exit, so I think I should... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. I hope that what I've spoken about has been some use, and if you want to get in touch, please do. Liz says she was eyeing the exit before we came down here, but I've told her, persuaded her. To, so when we finished, uh, James, then uh, we'll get all the speakers back up here and we can have a chance to have some discussion. Um, so um, over to James. I'm not sure whether it's called James or the vacuum cleaner, so you can make that decision. So James is the vacuum cleaner, as you can see, uh, an art and activism uh, collective of one. He works across different forms, performance, uh, installation, film, and so on, and his work is being exhibited internationally in many different places. I'm not going to take up more time of introduction, leave you to take over. Uh, and again, keep your questions coming for the session at the end. Okay, Cheers. Thank you. Uh, this is really intimidating. Hello. <laughs> um, so, yeah, my name's James. Uh, I make work under the name of The Vacuum Cleaner. That is a story that we don't have time for. It takes about 20 minutes. Yeah. Um, I've been making work for, <clears throat> sorry, about 12 years now. Um, my work is very varied. Sometimes it's performance. Sometimes it happens in art galleries. But mostly it happens in non-art spaces. Um, it's very much, what I do is very much about dealing with reality uh, and how applying ideas and applying action can affect change. Um, <clears throat> so I don't paint, uh, I can't sculpt, I can't draw, uh, and I can't spell, I'm really dyslexic. Um, yeah, and I'm not really interested in traditional art therapy. Um, for me, there is, there's no reason, there is no barrier to anybody taking, play, taking uh, participation in high-quality, highly conceptual or highly aestheticised art. It's just a question of how you present it and how you frame it and how you talk about it to make it accessible. Um, so, over the last four years... Uh, mental health has been the focus of the art that I've been making and also the focus of my life. Um, this is the... Uh, it's not a very good picture, but this is uh, Brett Ward at the City and Hackney Centre for Mental Health. Uh, I've spent over 10% of my adult life in various mental health hospitals. Most of them um, haven't been very nice places to be. They are very challenging places to be, and they can have quite a negative effect on your mental health, which is kind of odd, since you're in hospital and you're supposed to be getting better. Um, so, uh, I've been doing this art project over the last two years called Mad Lover Designer Asylum, and I just want to talk you through the journey that I've been going on with that project. Um, firstly, this is our logo. I'm hoping at some point to get a cease and desist from Louis Vuitton. <laughs> um, but it says here, it isn't a bad thing to need a safe space to experience mental distress. Over the last two years, 
Uh, my collaborator on this project, Hannah Hull, and I have been working on Mad Love Designer Asylum. This project is based on my uh, personal experience of mental health hospitals. Uh, for me, a lot of these environments felt more punishing than loving, oppressive rather than liberating. Design seemed to have been about health and safety rather than the therapeutic value of good design. Um, it felt like acute hospitals needed some mad love. So our process began in the autumn of 2014. We ran a series of workshops around the country that asked a series of very simple questions. We focused on positive solutions. We spoke to over 300 people that had lived experience of mental illness or had experience of inpatient care. And we also spoke to about 80 people uh, from the industry, so doctors, nurses, and other stakeholders, if you're using that language. Um, most of the workshops happened in art spaces, but we changed that, and that's in the future. We'll come back to that. Um, we uh, facilitated these workshops, and we asked a range of questions, such as, what does good mental health care look like smell like, taste like, sound like, and feel like to touch. Good mental health care smells like the grass in spring. It smells like black coffee. It smells like a signature perfume that you return to. It smells like the earth when the storm has broken. It's fresh country air or bed, bread being breaked. It is a far, distant in, in a far distant view. It's red and orange. It's green like nature, like an iceberg or the North Yorkshire moors. It tastes like fudge and whiskey. It's not bitter, but it is comforting. It's crisps or red wine. And it's fresh, and it's fresh, and it's fresh. It tastes like cumin or it tastes like a warm flavour. It feels safe. It's like a warm summer's day on my skin. It's like a massage. It's like a hug from my mum. It's smooth and it's silky. It's like a duvet around me on a cold day. It wraps me up and it keeps me warm. It sounds harmonic. It's like a jungle alive and full of energy. It's quiet. It's not loud, but it's gentle and it's safe. It sounds like Miles Davis. It's not the radio on in the background. It's more just like drone music to calm me. We asked people, what does good mental health care feel like? How does that make you feel? Well, it makes you feel treated like an individual, being valued, like I can be trusted in situations, it's not cold and distant, it's always informal. It actively listens to me, it is homely and on a human scale, I don't feel like I'm a giant herd of sheep. It's nourishing. Whatever I do, whatever I say, I don't feel judged. I am helped, I am held, I am properly supported. And I can say things, and it won't be taken out of context and used against me later. 
we ended the, the workshops by asking if you could design your own asylum, and by asylum we use it in the traditional root of the word as in safe place. Um, if you could design your own asylum, what would it be like? We told people not to worry about money. Sorry. <laughs> All the laws of physics. Sorry. <laughs> well, it would have a garden with running water. There is a perfect cafe in this asylum, and there is a Michelin star chef who can make me any food that I want, or I can cook for other people. There is a flotation chamber. There is a teleportation system to bring people to me who, I, who I need to see at that exact moment in time. There are feral cats everywhere. <laughs> there is the ability to go on long walks. There is a room full of bubble wrap. There is a farm with animals, and I have to take responsibility for the animals when I can't take responsibility for myself. It's like a hotel room in a five-star hotel. I've never been in a five-star hotel, but I imagine it's like this. There is a dance floor where you can dance with other people or on your own. There is stargazing at night. There are no spectators, and it's not claustrophobic. There is a weather room where I can pick the weather. There is no passive-aggressive signs. My favourite one. <laughs> so these are just some of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of suggestions that we'd received during these workshops and also online as well. So we were invited to participate in uh, an exhibition called Group Therapy, Mental Distress in a Digital Age, which was at the Foundation for Art and Creative Technology in Liverpool. I am contractually obliged to say that we received funding from the Wellcome Trust and the British Psychological Society. Tick. <laughs> um, the exhibition was open for 12 weeks. We collected all the research that we'd gathered in these workshops and sat down with our architects, James Christian and Ben Kalowski. We, they are process-led architects, so they're very much about working with people to help them realise their ideas. Um, this exhibition was a chance for us to test out some of the ideas in a safe environment. So it was, it was in an art space, it wasn't in a hospital, blah, 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 so you understand the risks involved. Um, <clears throat> A lot of popular ideas that we identified in the research were the need for different levels of privacy, the need for colour and the senses to be stimulated, a non-institutional environment, the wish to have control over the senses and the wish to not be treated as stupid, as mad but not stupid. Um, so in our space... Um, Ah, let's go back. The first thing you saw was the welcome mat, because you all need to feel welcomed, right? And then in the corner of the space, we had this thing called the cooling tower. And this was the most private space in, in the little gallery bit that we were inhabiting. Um, inside, uh, we had red pillows. So it was reminiscent of the padded cell, and that was intentional. The difference is, is that you were never locked in there. You had the key. And it meant that you could go in this space and scream, you could punch the walls in a safe way, and nobody would know what was going on outside because it was quite heavily soundproofed. 
Um, this is the Turkish delight. This is an intimate space for sitting with another person to have conversations. So you can sit in there, it's very snug inside, and you can have those heart-to-heart conversations that you need to have in, private, in privacy. Um, it was intentionally designed so that you could pull a curtain across it, but you could still see the feet underneath, so you knew it was occupied, and you didn't have the need for privacy, do not disturb, and all that other passive-aggressive sign things that people don't like. Um, this is the staircase bookcase to nowhere. Um, a lot of people spoke about the wish to be able to sit apart from a group to, but not feel too distant from them. So you need that space to be on your own but you don't want to feel totally isolated. So you could climb to the top of the bookcase and sit up there and on the side is the bookcase and we ran something called the Library of Good Mental Health. So we asked people to suggest books that were supportive of their mental health. That didn't mean like you know, self-help books. It could be anything from a graphic novel to a, a traditional novel. Anything was valid. And so people came in and do- donated books. And in the front cover of the book, they wrote a little 100-word suggestion of why that book was good for their mental health. Um, you can see that you can also open the door and sit under the stairs as well, which a lot of people seem to, you know, it's a childhood thing you do when you're in trouble and you go and hide in this place and it feels safe. Um, on the ceiling of the spaces, we hung umbrellas to give it the sense, just to partly to drop the ceiling, but also to give it this enclosed feeling. And in the centre of the environment, we had this space called the Mad Love Oasis. And this was really a space to come together, to do activities, to run workshops for the people that we'd engaged in Liverpool in the run-up to the exhibition. Um, the sense of smell was important, so we managed to find a company in America that produces pretty much any smell that you would like, and they produced them in room sprays. So as, when you went into the space, you could pick a smell that was supportive of your mental health. So we have dirt, lavender, salt air, birthday cake, and so on. You could also pick the weather. So there was a selection of DVDs where you could pick a DVD and that weather system would be projected onto the umbrellas above the space. Now, it's all very nice to make a pretty art, uh, space in an art gallery, but it's kind of meaningless unless it's activated by people. So we spent over three months engaging uh, people in Liverpool and we asked them specifically, what do you do that supports your mental health and how can you share that with other people? Um, so people could really, you know, we built the space, but it was really about other people activating it and using it. So we had over 3,500 people visiting the space and over 350 people uh, actively using it as in terms of coming to workshops or coming back to talks. And I think there was over 80 different events that were held in that 12-week period. So it was really, like, busy, and that was really great. Um, So another uh, element of this project is changing the perception of the mental health hospital. Because one of the problems is is that if you're distressed, you're not going to go and willingly admit yourself to a mental health hospital because you've seen one flew over the cuckoo's nest and that's clouded your judgment on what healthcare is actually like. So one of the intentions with this project is to change the perception of the mental health hospital from something scary into something positive that actually it's a good thing to go and get support with your mental health. So we did a lot of media around this project, and we had 32 million media impressions, whatever that means. Um, That's the power of the BBC, still. Um, 
So this exhibition closed in May last year and we had a big evaluation process for this project. We worked with the Institute of Psychology who did quantitative and qualitative analysis of what we've been doing to find out where the gaps were. Um, and from that uh, evaluation process we realised that there were some people that we weren't speaking to. So actually people from the BME community weren't really proportionally represented in the group. So, um, and also we needed to address acute care, like what happens for people that need high levels of care and how is this project relevant to them. So we've just received some funding from the Arts Council to go and run these workshops in hospitals specifically. So last week we started working in a high security mental health hospital that I am not allowed to say the name of, but if you think about it for long enough you'll get what I'm talking about. And NHS contracts are weird. <laughs> um, and we're also working in two medium secure hospitals and then we start working in the Bethlehem Hospital in South London on Friday and this process is to really broaden and deepen our research um, uh, so we're going to continue that process until May this year and then in September of this year we have a three month exhibition at the Welcome Collection they have a big exhibition on asylums coming up so we will be presenting all of our research in this exhibition. Um, and that's all very nice and everything, but what's become really important in this project is for it actually to have a real-world implication. Like, how can this utopian, willfully optimistic idea of what a mental health hospital could be like, how can that become reality? And that's the challenge, because... Um, one of the intentions with the project was always to locate it within the art world. Because in the art world, you can make mistakes, you can take risks, and doing that in the healthcare context is much, much more difficult. It's, they just, it's difficult for them to get their head around it. But um, that is the next step that we're taking. So we've just um, started the interior of a child and adolescent mental health hospital in Edinburgh that is being built in September and uh, the high security hospital level, uh, that we're working in we're designing some new features for the rebuild of that hospital so it is beginning to seep in to healthcare settings um, but that process is probably going to take us about another five to seven years because it just takes a lot of time uh, I'll press that that's our website uh, but I also really wanted to say that it's, the thing is is it's about giving agency to people. And I think this is, mental health is slightly different to physical health. But what we found is we've been speaking to people that are complete experts on their conditions. They understand what they need to do to be supported and the kind of environments that they would like to be supported in. For me, it feels like it currently we're not really tapping into that knowledge base. And it's such an amazing resource and it's been totally fascinating and wonderful. To, you know, we've been working with some really, really damaged people, yet they have such insight, so it's really exciting to bring all that knowledge out and to begin to share it in this kind of positive framework thing. Uh, I think I should shut up, shouldn't I? <laughs> Thanks a lot. So um, can I just get the four speakers to come back up? Uh, so what we'll do... Um
you've got microphones. Be easier if you use the microphone um, for asking your question or making a comment. Um, just to emphasise, there are two key words there: question, comment. The word I didn't use was lecture, so we don't want you to be giving your lecture. Okay, so keep it as brief as you can, but get the point across. Um, perhaps it's easier if I just stand here to see. If I don't. So, um, please, far away. Comments or questions? There's one over there, I think. There's a microphone coming to you. Up, just keep your hand up, then the microphone carrier can see you. Just briefly say who you are. Just help to keep the thing up. Hi, um, I'm from uh, Central School of Speech and Drama. I'm doing a Master's in Applied Theatre and I'm basing a lot of my research on the mental health care system. Um, my question goes to um, is it Vivian. Um, I was just wondering, because um, you were saying that within the arts that the cases aren't presented properly and people kind of say, well, yes, people have fun and it makes them happy kind of thing. Whereas I've come across a lot of evidence, econo economic, scientific, within the healthcare, and also um, just from um, spoken word of patients and participants and so on. What kind of evidence do you think will be beneficial for getting the arts completely <laughs> and properly noticed? Because even though there is a lot of evidence about, I feel like it's more that there's this stigma against the arts and like you said, it is seen as this fluffy thing. Therefore, whatever evidence we try and put across might not be taken seriously. Uh, I think that's a really valid question, but it is interesting that, um, and I've heard this a lot, I mean, there was somebody who stood up at this huge showcase of arts uh, 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 in health uh, interventions and said, but there's arts evidence, isn't there? And there's health evidence. And actually, evidence is evidence. And I think the arts have got to be careful about what they pick as their parameters you're, uh, for, for change. In other words, you know, if you're, if you're going to say it's to prevent premature deaths, you're never going to get there because you'll need far too many people to, in a programme to be able to demonstrate anything like that. So you've got to do pilots, and maybe those pilots are the things that are funded by Arts Council or they're funded by... Uh, local uh, charities or organisations and then you've got to show where you are there's a big evaluation framework that's available on the ESOP website which shows where you are with your evidence and remember that sometimes things that we think to ourselves must be so so for instance, here's a classic example so um, using plastic glasses in pubs where there's a high level of violence at closing time will reduce the risk of injuries. Ha put up your hands if you think that's true. That plastic glasses will reduce the... Uh, actually, it doesn't. When you do a piece of proper piece of uh, work, uh, it doesn't. So the things that seem like the most slam-dunk bit of evidence to you are sometimes not... And just evidence in turn, you know, evidence is not one person or even five people saying 
it worked for me. Because if you're a health service and it's money that might take away from other services, you've really got to prove a benefit for a lot of people. Or else, why fund that rather than hips, replacement hips, or drugs? Or So that's got to be your bottom line. Can I just ask, does Liz, James, or Dave want to say anything in response to this? Um, I mean, I'm not a researcher. I don't have a science background. I don't... I have no formal training at all. And, uh, but you do fantastic work. Cheers. Yes. <laughs> um, sometimes, as an artist, you're expected to be like a, a jack-of-all-trades. Mm-hmm. But for me, it's like I'm, I don't have the capacity to take on doing this evaluation. So this is about where partnerships become mm-hmm. really, really important. And it's a, it's a big thing anyway about strategic partnerships and all of that. But for me, with the Madler project, we really needed to evaluate how the workshops were going and what the outcomes were. So I just emailed somebody at the Royal College of Psychiatrists in the research department and said, can you help me devise an evaluation scheme for this? Yes, I can. Come on in, have a meeting. Okay, blah, blah, blah. Three weeks later, we've got a, you know, a randomised controlled thing that gives us really good data uh, that I don't really understand, but the NHS does understand it, yeah. really. And that's it. It's the and different languages, the isn't it? You, it is. There's two separate languages, yeah. and the, the, the language of the NHS is data. And you can rage against that, and you can say, oh, they should listen to the arts evidence, they shouldn't, let, it shouldn't go for the NHS data. They have to go for the NHS data. It's public cash, And actually, it really matters that you've got the hard evidence. If I I could add to that, um, so there is the sort of hard evidence side of things and there's the funding and the kind of skills capacity to be able to Mm. do that kind of stuff. But there's also another valuable uh, role for the arts, and that's also to demonstrate... If art means that people engage with a health-promoting activity that they otherwise wouldn't engage with on a regular basis then that's a good argument to make as well. Mm. And you don't necessarily then need to prove that the art itself is making the difference, but it's because they're participating and getting the, and then doing something else that, that, that has the difference. So that's why there's a lot of interest in anything that encourages more social activity, social group participation, and the benefits of those as well. And, and that, I think that's also another thing to look at, because public health interventions, it doesn't matter how fantastic they are, if people don't use them, they make absolutely mm. no difference. Okay, next question or comment? Couple here, so yes, whatever. Whichever you get to first, that's fine. And then we'll go to the other person. So. Hi, um, I'm, my name's Kat. Um, I'm a trainee art psychotherapist, and I'm just about to finish my training this year. Um, I'm, I was drawn to the title of this exhibition. Um, Talk. Sorry, I was drawn to the title of the talk because of art and well-being, which is kind of what I mainly focus on. And I'm curious, I suppose my question goes to all of you, but also kind of a side question to Liz and James, um, as to why there wasn't any kind of mention about art therapy apart from the brief talk about music therapy. And actually, all the work that surrounds art therapies with drama and and music and, and dance movement 
and also with Liz and James, I think you're doing such fantastic work, and I wondered whether there might be, or have you ever thought about working alongside art therapists as well, and I think art therapists could learn a lot from you, and, mm. and maybe there could be some more learning and development from art therapists for yourself. Okay, so all four of you may want to say something. Um, what's the start? Liz, I think say for yeah. me, Broken Grey Wires, it was, from the beginning, it was really important that it was... Art therapy is amazing, it's really great, but it was high quality. It was working with people that wanted to do art professionally. Um, and a lot of the people that come to the workshops are artists with mental health issues. So it was important to separate the two and um, give them an opportunity and a space to come in where there's other people that are struggling as well and create really high quality work that would then be in exhibitions. James, go on. <laughs> no, on no, I haven't thawm- formed okay, my day. Well, what are you thinking? I mean, um, watch this space because we are doing some work on certainly around um, music therapy, but also around drama therapy as well. And one of the challenges actually with those kinds of uh, interventions, particularly the drama therapy, we're looking at drama therapy in schools for children on the autistic spectrum. And the challenge there, of course, is that the commissioners you have to reach there, are the head teachers or the education budget holders, usually the head teachers these days, and making an argument that's partly about the educational benefits as well as the health benefits. But we are looking at therapies as well as art in terms of perform- performers and performance arts and all the rest of it. But, but it's important to think about therapy as well. So there are already there are art therapists and there are music therapists working in the NHS. They're part of the allied health professionals. Um, but... Uh, They are clinically trained and very highly trained and they deliver care and uh, interventions to people that require a very high level of uh, intervention and they do a brilliant job. But there are only, and I think from memory, there are less than 150 of you across the country. It's something really weeny. Okay, so I, 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 so I was at the Allied Health Professionals Conference, which I did not that long ago. So, but relatively, yeah. you are a tiny profession. And the thing is that there is a huge need for uh, people to engage and to, with like dance and all sorts of other uh, professions. So you can't deliver as much arts interventions are needed. What you're brilliant at is one-to-one and perhaps for smaller groups of people with a very, very distinct um, clinical need where you have to have a high degree of training. What I think the wider arts, if I can put it like that, does uh, brilliantly is that it can gauge 20, 30 people at a time. They can be trained to do a specific intervention, but obviously not have the training that, uh, that you have and the, 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 the clinical uh, regulation. But they can do a very good job in a particular area. And I think you need to have an enormous number of people. The health profession is... They don't have enough people to do all the things that are necessary. Actually, arts professionals represent an enormous extra workforce for the NHS. 
above and beyond those people that they already have. I think, James, um, sorry, I was going to say, I think that's why I was, I, I think, yeah, I think you're right, and I think it's probably my, my second question was, it, maybe it would be a wonderful thing if art therapists and artists could work together to address the mass, and, and I think there might be a grey zone there that I felt was a bit left out in this, and maybe it would be interesting to bring those together. It's just something that came to light through listening. Okay, James, do you want to say anything? Or you don't have well, I think my, my experience of art therapy, don't take this personally, has been really negative in that when I've been in hospital, the, the art therapist comes along and says, do you want to come to the art room? And you go in this tiny room, it's the smallest room in the hospital, and you sat around a table with six other depressed people. And they say, why, sticky back plastic. And they say, why don't you paint a picture of how depressed you are? How, how are you feeling? And I'm just like... Why don't you f off? I'm not doing this. And I think, I think there needs to be a bit of a revolution in art therapy, in that it m- needs to become much more critical in its practice. I don't think this idea of art as expression and the facilitation of that is enough. I think you, the the profound experiences I've had are when you are doing conceptually or like you know really challenging projects and it's actually if i'm if i'm in a very distressed state i don't want to be cheered up i want those feelings to be validated and for that experience to be validated and that common experience that other people are having so i think to yeah things might need to get a bit shaked up a little bit just to kind of really have the value in that rather than just the tokenistic this is going to make you better when it's just passing time. But don't take that as a personal attack no, at all. Okay. Say, I'm really all sorry right. about your, your experience, but thank you, it's helpful okay. to hear. Okay, so can you pass the microphone just in front there? Yeah, okay. So let's have a quick question, quick answer, so we've got maybe time for one more after that. So. Um, I want to ask a question about the timing of impact um, of the arts and health, because if I think about my own experience, there's art that I was exposed to 40 years ago that has an impact on my, my health and well-being today. And I want to ask the artists how, when you're working in art that is contributing to health, do you factor in that, that kind of often long-term impact? And I want to ask the, um, the politicians, if you like, or the, the academics. Oh, blimey, I'm not, <laughs> blimey, I'm not a politician. The policy works. Um, <laughs> How do you measure that? And because a lot of the measurement systems I see are very short-term, I think unhelpfully so. So, yeah, both sides of that question. How does timing fit in with impact? Who wants to start? Time, like how the short-term... Time lag. Who wants to start? Relatively short short answers if you can. uh... I mean, art has saved my life. That's a long-term benefit, right? And I don't mean that in like, oh, art has saved my life. Art has genuinely stopped me from killing myself. Mm -hmm. And that is a profound thing that art can do for so many people and you can't you can't put a price on that but you can somebody will try <laughs> but um, one of the problems is is that we don't have a culture within the arts of doing long term genuinely long term projects so for me doing this Madler project where I'm like this might turn into a 10 year project and I say that to other people and people go that's ridiculous, that's like 10 years of your life. But it, it, it might take that time to do it. 
And to secure the funding to do that, well, it means I do something for six months and then I spend the next six months doing funding applications and that cycle continues. And so without the genuine financial support to do things in a slow, steady, considered way that will have profound effect over a long period of time would require a serious change in how we fund things in this country, which, because we're all about short- to medium-term thinking, is, you know, be nice. And I think there's another really difficult... Yeah. Please, go on, sorry. I was going to say, word for word, exactly the same situation. The funding, it's very difficult for it to be short-term. It's already the... The exhibition in March in London, the big exhibition, it was meant to be in June, but because of the funding rejection, it's had to go a, a year later now than planned. That's why I think moving some of the arts that are delivering these benefits away from project funding, which are just not sustainable, they're really not, into where you're getting a regular income stream and where, frankly, you're valued for what immense contribution you make. But just don't think about it as just being the arts that are like this. Um, I'm, you know, my area is innovation in medicine, and you can get fantastic kit that has amazing benefits and as these health economists will know it's all about some awful thing that they call proximity of budget and if you can't and if you can't show a saving in year even though it saves you a huge amount of money over two or three years you can't do it i mean how bonkers is that and I've just seen something that, uh, where a, fracture, a virtual fracture clinic saves half a million pounds a year, but they can't do it because it saves money in year two, not in year one. Dave, very quickly on the timing issue. Maybe, just maybe, in all the surveys, that there are longitudinal surveys out there for all sorts of things. Do they have anything at all that's relevant to exposure to arts over time? I don't know, but maybe that's one thing to look at in terms of what's out there. But the other thing, quite honestly, is to think about can you embed these things into surveys going forward uh, about people's experience? And that's not easy because everyone wants their little bit of something into these surveys of the population. But that's the only way to get long-term data. You have to follow people up for a long time. Okay, right, we need to bring things to a close. We've got two or three things to say to finish. One is, um, Viv was talking about tomorrow's world and driverless cars and why we don't have them. And I learned something very interesting last week, that all these, what they call autonomous vehicles, driverless cars, there is currently a competition for composers to design the sound that these cars will make so they're not so dangerous and they don't creep up on us and knock us over. When so if there's an artist out there with just the right sound, you could be famous yeah. and very, very rich, I suspect. Yeah. Um, I want to thank people. Firstly, um, thank LSE for having this festival and giving us the opportunity to have this session. I want to thank my colleague Angie Mehta, who hates being thanked, but she did all the work to get people together. I want to thank our four speakers who gave us some really great talks, so David, Vivian, James and Liz. Um, and mainly I want to thank you, because if you weren't here, there'd been a pretty empty session. So thank you very much for coming along and supporting us.